Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Welcome to the Simply Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Hassoun. In this podcast, I'll be looking at three key questions related to fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I will break these down into information that is easy to understand and actionable so that you can apply it to your life today. This podcast will give you all you need to improve your health and well-being once and for all. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, take action. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. So today I am in a very chilled out mood. I am in the middle of three or four days off for the first this year. Definitely been a heavy start to the year. So I am just appreciating the value of time off. I had a moment yesterday where it just occurred to me. I was like, I genuinely don't have any obligations or anywhere that I need to be right now. And it was such a a liberating feeling. I mean, I love what I do. I really do. And don't get me wrong. I'm recording this podcast on my time off technically. However, it has been so valuable and actually very underrated in my eyes as well. So what I did, and I thought it was worth sharing this before I get into three topics today, was every eight weeks in my diary, I've allocated that I'm going to take off between like three and five days. And that's inclusive of the weekend. So this time around, I took off from Thursday up until Sunday. So it was four days total. And the idea is that I wasn't supposed to do anything. And I'm recording this podcast, but that's because I don't mind recording this podcast and I actually genuinely enjoy it. But I've been able to have some downtime. I'm still going to continue it through tonight, through till tomorrow. And now every eight weeks, I have this time to take and I am definitely going to embrace it when it comes now because I think a lot of us, because, you know, we've been working from home and everything like that. And also not to mention, we just had the Christmas and New Year period, we put off time off, you know, we didn't think it's necessary or we don't want to waste it because we're spending time at home. However, there is still value to it. Not only is there value to it, the thing with holiday is you don't want to get to the point where you need holiday when you take holiday. You kind of just want to be just about ready for it, right? You don't want to be too soon um, because you might, you think, might feel like, oh, well, you know, I was building momentum, I was into my work. And you also don't want to be too far gone because of when you actually take the holiday, you don't feel recovered from it. So when you're in that somewhere in between period, that's ideal. And that's kind of the idea and the mentality behind me putting this in my diary every eight weeks, no matter what, 
so that when that time comes, I'm like, oh, yeah, I probably do need some time off rather than waiting until I'm feeling burnt out or exhausted before I start to take it. So this um, first one of the year is definitely at a good time. I feel we all underestimate the intensity of the start of the year. And, you know, we're just like, oh, we just had Christmas. We just had X amount of weeks off. But we all know that January is a long month. So having something in February to look forward to has been really valuable to me. And if you haven't taken any this year, this would be my guidance on to just at least look at your calendar and like, when can you set aside Maybe it's not even a, a long time off. Maybe it's just like a Friday. And then on Saturday, Sunday, you indulge in just time to yourself more so than anything. You just try and free up some space in your calendar. And I can tell you it's going to be worthwhile. So that's just a little uh, side note to begin with. But today I have three topics that don't even need introducing. They honestly speak for themselves. Without further ado, I'm going to just jump straight in with a nutrition question first, which is Elliot. How do I get enough protein as a vegetarian or a vegan? And is it even possible? So for the first time ever, I will start by giving you the straight answer. And then, of course, I'm going to give you the context around it and how you can do it. But if you're a vegetarian, it's 100% doable. If you eat eggs and dairy and you're a vegetarian, it's actually pretty damn simple. If you're a vegan, it's 100% doable as well. It's not quite as simple as when you're a vegetarian. However, it definitely can be done. And I can speak from experience here. I'm not a vegetarian or vegan uh, myself, but I actually refer to the list of guys and girls that I work with and I'm currently coaching at the moment. I was intrigued. I was like, what's the split? What's the ratio that are vegan or vegetarian? I'm going to call them veg-based for the rest of um, this podcast just to make it a little bit easier for me. And I actually realized that 40 to 45% are either vegan or vegetarian at this moment in time. And I'm pretty sure that in the past, it would have been more in favor of like 55 to 60% of those being veg-based or plant-based, let's say, as opposed to being someone who eats meat and fish, etc. So I definitely have a lot of experience with working with people who are plant-based and they do get enough protein as well. So actually, I want to go into next is why this is usually perceived as a challenge, because it really is. The first reason is that most people don't know what good sources of protein are for vegan and vegetarians, right? If you ask 10 people right now, you went up to 10 random people on the street and you're socially distancing, of course, and you ask them what a good source of protein was for a vegan or vegetarian, I guarantee at least seven or eight of them would say something like lentils, chickpeas, quinoa, etc. And these food sources, you know, they definitely have some protein in, but it's quite marginal. And it would be impossible to eat a, like a real decent amount of protein if these are your primary sources of protein. And not only that, but it would be incredibly challenging to keep the calories low too. For example, right, let's take 100 grams of chicken breast. It will have somewhere between 20 to 25 grams of protein and it will maybe roughly amount to about 100 calories. And it has minimal fat um, and minimal carbohydrates as well. Let's say if you want to get 20 to 25 grams of protein from lentils, like you're looking at over 250 calories and probably upwards of about 45 grams of carbs. And then if we look at chickpeas, you're, up, you're looking at upwards of 375 calories and a whopping 65 grams of carbs and some fat as well. So not to mention that eating like over 200 grams of lentils or 100 grams of chickpeas isn't the easiest thing to do in the world either. So if you do believe that these are your primary sources of protein, no wonder you're having a tough time, 
right? The second reason that this is a challenge, and this is actually a fair one, as most plant-based like protein sources, as you just saw with like chickpeas and lentils, they are usually not pure sources of protein, right? They A lot of them have carbs and fats that accompany them and in quite large amounts as well, right? Whereas on the other hand, when it comes to someone who does eat meat and fish, you have a lot of options like chicken breast, for instance, like I just mentioned, super lean cuts of turkey or tur like, yeah, 2% turkey you can get, white fish, which is basically minimal in anything but protein, tuna, prawns, etc. So you we have a lot of sources, you know, those of us who aren't plant-based. And if you're in a fat loss phase where protein is likely to be higher and carbs and fats are going to be lower, then it does present a little bit of a challenge. And I do appreciate that. So it does reduce your options slightly. However, at the same time, any time that you choose to exclude a certain food from your repertoire or food group, I should say, it's unfortunately the price you have to pay. And this isn't a discussion about whether being plant-based is right or wrong. It's just, you know, showing you guys that there is a way, but you also have to accept that when you do make that decision, things will be harder. Even if you go keto, even if you go gluten-free, it doesn't matter. You will have some limitations if you choose to eliminate a certain food group. So the next question I'm sure you're thinking is, well, Elliot, what is the way to do this? So I think we should start by looking at how much protein you'll want to have if you want to preserve or gain lean muscle tissue. And I think this should just be a daily requirement. It doesn't matter if you're training hard or not training at all. It doesn't matter if you are in a fat loss phase or you're just maintaining. I think everyone should be somewhere in and around the 1.8 to 2.2 per kilo range and 1.8 to 2.2 grams, I should say. And if I'm working with someone who is vegan and vegetarian, I'm automatically going to place them a little bit lower on that scale, closer to that 1.8 mark, because that's just going to make it easier. And I've actually had situations where, actually, I can give my mum as a good example here, uh, where, you know, she's barely reaching like 30 to 40 grams of protein per day before. And if we were to go up to 1.8 grams per kilo, it would have been quite a big ask, and it was a big ask. So if this is where you're at currently and you're barely scratching the surface when it comes to protein, just doubling it or adding like 20 to 30 grams at a time, like daily, it, not adding 20 to 30 grams every day, but in terms of adding 20 to 30 grams to your day every couple of weeks or so, if you can manage it whilst you adjust, is still steps in the right direction. So that would be what's advisable if you are like I said, scratching the surface with your protein intake. And I do want to throw in this quick caveat as I think it would be really helpful for people to know. So as we know, when you're lactose intolerant, it's because your body doesn't produce enough of the enzyme called lactase, right? And that breaks down lactose. When you reduce your dairy consumption or you eliminate it entirely, your body will obviously downregulate the production of lactase as it's not needed. We're not consuming lactose, therefore we don't need lactase. So if you've ever cut out dairy, and this, this happened to me as well, and tried to bring it back in, and you just noticed that your body just wasn't having it, probably part of the reason why. And you can actually retrain your body to be slightly more tolerant to dairy, but that's going to be another story for another day. But we'll, we'll keep on track for now. But it's going to be a similar case for protein too, right? If you're used to consuming 30 grams a day on average, your body is only going to be producing so much protease, which, you know, you guessed it, is the enzyme that breaks down protein. So if you ask your body to start digesting 100 grams of protein, which is like double or more, or even probably triple almost, it's going to take a little bit of time for your body to adjust to that level and start producing, producing sorry, enough protease to handle the amount of protein that's coming in. 
So if you've ever started a higher protein diet and found yourself super full, this will be part of the reason why. And not to mention that protein is, you know, it's more satiating by nature. And, you know, if you are starting a plan like this, and my clients will notice, they're going to increase their fiber and water intake as well, which are all going to promote that feeling of fullness. So you're definitely going to feel very full if you're increasing protein and, you know, starting a fat loss phase where fiber and water is all up as well. But let's get back on track. We've established your protein target. And I've got a few rules here. And the number one rule for protein is that you should always start your day with it. Even if you do eat meat and fish, I just think it's just a really good idea because carbs and fats, they're easy to consume. And if you start your day with protein, you give yourself a good head start. It's really as simple as that. In fact, these rules are in no particular order, but that's probably a good one to start with. The second one, which goes hand in hand with this, is you need to pick your protein source first when it comes to picking the meal you have. A lot of us are in the mindset of like, oh, okay, let's go for pasta today, cereal, bagels, potatoes, like our usual inclination is carbohydrate sources. Whereas if you pick your protein first, you know, you, at least you've covered that base and then you can choose the necessary fat and carb sources around it to complement that protein source rather than cooking something that, you know, traditionally maybe protein doesn't go with. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but you create a dish and you're like, well, I don't actually need any like, protein sources with it. So if you actually start with protein in mind, you'll create a dish that actually welcomes protein as opposed to where it doesn't really fit in. And the final rule here is that any time we have a serving of protein, this is probably one of the most important ones, is that we want to hit the leucine threshold ideally, which is depending on our body weight is roughly around 20 to 40 grams of protein per serving for the majority of us. And without going into too much detail, this essentially means we're getting the most out of that protein from like an anabolism and like muscle gaining standpoint, okay? So what would be a typical meal plan for a vegetarian for myself? So what I want to go through next is how I might set up a client's meal plan. So I would usually obviously begin by the first meal of the day and I'm going to go for a cooked option and I'm also going to offer a non-cooked option just to make things easy. So if we're going for a cooked option and eggs is on the menu, it's almost always going to start with eggs. It's going to be one of the easiest places to begin. I'm personally a big fan of having whole eggs and egg whites. As if we're looking at like two eggs, we're roughly going to get 12 grams of protein, maybe eight-ish grams of fat. Whereas if we have, I don't know, one whole egg and then 150 grams of egg whites, we're looking at closer to 20 grams of protein and a little less fat and overall calories too. If eggs isn't on the menu, a scrambled tofu is a good option and genuinely look into a recipe of how to properly do this. Don't assume it's just your typical gross unflavored tofu chunks. Take the time and take the effort because you can actually make it really tasty. And then there's also options like corn and uh, Linda McCartney sausages that you can also add to the mix as well. Then we'd obviously add fats and carbs around this if, if they're needed. And if we're looking at a non-cooked option, and this is, you know, if we'll start by going with if dairy is on the menu, a low-fat Greek yogurt combined with a protein powder is a really, really awesome option. If dairy isn't on the menu, then soy, coconut yogurt mixed with protein powder, a plant-based one works just fine as well. It might even be, you know, a smoothie with frozen berries, some good fats thrown in there, and protein powder as well. And there's plenty of quality plant-based proteins out there as well. So you're not lacking if you're in the vegetarian and vegan community. And when it comes to lunch next, I'm going to probably start looking at, you know, towards 
tofu potentially once again again some uh, meat replacements or corn or edamame and soybeans cottage cheese or reduced fat paneer if there is on the menu like so many different options and then usually i'm going to mix it in with a salad veg along with some nuts potentially which can add a few grams of protein here and there but they shouldn't be thought of as a good protein source for a meal as it's just not going to get as close to that 20 gram mark. And if you try to get 20 grams of protein out of nuts, you probably consume about five or 600 calories in the process, which is not a good use of uh, calories. And then the evening meal will look pretty similar with obviously differing carbs and fat sources. We might throw in some black bean spaghetti, which is surprisingly good protein as well. Some red lentils, as long as we have some carbs available, some reduced fat halloumi, if dairy is on the menu, it really comes down to how many macros we have left over. And it goes without saying that obviously the higher your calories are, the more fat and carbs you can have within your diet as well. So outside of a fat loss phase, it is a little bit easier as well. But I also like to use protein supplementation to help bump up the total numbers. This is a really good way of doing it. Let's say your protein target is 120 grams. You have three meals, you get 30 grams of protein per meal, which is fantastic. And then you just need that extra 30 grams that you get through protein powder or if dairy is an option, then like I said, the higher protein yogurt, like a skier or a, like a 0% Greek yogurt, are great, great options to just bump that up. And if it's not, then I just try to get the most protein I can within the meals. And then the snacks are not actually going to be protein based per se. They're just going to be, you know, carbon fats, maybe some fruits and nuts and stuff along those lines. And I do want to throw in one bonus tip here is if you can't quite get to that 20 gram protein mark in a meal, this is where BCAAs or EAAs will be helpful. And as they'll contain some of the extra leucine that will allow you to hit that threshold. And for me, this is probably one of the only times that a supplement like this would be a valuable option. Um, and that's like a, a nice little extra help if you need it. And that's the whole idea of a supplement because you've already covered the rest and that's to supplement the rest. So there you have it. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely doable. And if you're a fish and meat eater and you're struggling to get your protein on a day-to-day -day basis, you're just being fussy. Right, let's move on. And the next one is a trading question. I think this is an interesting one. And I can't tell you how many times I had this when the first lockdown hit. So Elliot, is a Peloton bike a good investment? And you have to admire a brand like Peloton too. Like pre-lockdown, there was definitely a market for the, you know, premium indoor exercise bike. But I feel if you were probably looking at that market, it was a people with a large amount of disposable income, a decent amount of space in their house. And then, you know, finally someone who actually enjoyed exercising at home and saw it as a viable option, which a lot of us pre-lockdown did not. I'll put that out there. And I can imagine they were doing pretty well before, you know, just within their niche, within their market. But as soon as lockdown hit, I feel that they were ready. I'm not sure if they had things like their 30-day trial, their monthly payments, their app, or even their treadmill, which I didn't know they had until I, I searched when people were asking, like before the lockdown hit. But when you look at their website now, it's impressive. They've got a lot of options. And I will tell you why I'm most impressed. Because they've made something seemingly quite boring and something that's been around for years and years as well, pretty damn cool, actually. I mean, no offense, um, but at the end of the day, you are seated on a bike that doesn't go anywhere and you pedal. It's kind of the equivalent of a human hamster wheel, if you look at it like that. And when you say it like that, without any vision or imagination, then it does seem pretty boring. But of course, they've created that imagination. They've created that vision. And the Peloton actually seemed pretty cool. And it's quite fun. And it actually appeals to me. 
And like, I don't actually find the idea of indoor cycling that exciting, to be honest. But I find the idea of a, a peloton quite interesting. Like, don't get me wrong, I'd rather be going on an outdoor bike in the mountains if, if that was a possibility. I'd probably injure myself, but that's another story for another day. But, you know, it is a viable option. It's quite an exciting option. And if you go beyond the bike as well, there's an app full of workouts they do. You can do it without a bike or a treadmill. So, like, they have the option for you if you want to go all out. And they also have the option for you if your budget is limited, but you just want to go for, like, that trusted, uh, reputable brand. So I have to say, I'm impressed. And, you know, they are one of the companies that have done incredibly well when a lot of businesses would have struggled. I'm going to stop being a fanboy for a second and get back to the question. But I I do think that adding that context does help towards my answer today. And what we have to recognize is that prior to the pandemic, most home exercise equipment was stashed in the shed, it was in the garage, or it had become, honestly, a glorified laundry hanger. That's the truth, wasn't it, guys? Like, I guarantee you a lot of people had to pull off, you know, the wipe off the dust off them, get out of the corner, and, you know, take their laundry off it. Like, most people weren't using them. Gyms were open. We had, like, you know, we didn't just have that one machine that was at home. We had, you know, three, five, six different cardio machines that we wanted to utilize if we needed to, right? We didn't have to go to that corner of the house where it was hiding, you know, because no one else was using it. And as we know, times have changed massively. And so many more of us are exercising from home and probably definitely wipe the dust off those machines as well. And now that exercise from home, like specifically doing cardio is a very real option for us, then the Peloton becomes a very attractive idea. The reason being is that it's engaging, it's fresh, it's aesthetically pleasing to look at. And I don't know about the comfort levels as I've never actually sat on one, but I can imagine it's, you know, as comfortable as an indoor bike can be because it's always going to be a level of discomfort. So without going any further, the answer to the question is yes, I do think it's a good investment. But I do want to add the caveat that it doesn't have to be a Peloton bike. Like I think the overriding message here is that it ultimately comes down to, you know, when it comes to exercising at home, you just want to create minimal resistance to doing it. If your bike is old, it's uncomfortable, it doesn't have any interactive features, there's quite a few reasons there which you could skip actually doing the cardio at home. However, if it's, you know, the opposite and it actually is looking attractive, it has interactive features, then you're going to be more likely to utilize it as it breaks down those barriers. And the next aspect here is the financial element of this, right? I assume there is more expensive bikes out there. And I certainly know that there is more inexpensive options out there, right? So a Peloton bike with all the fancy accessories is going to be somewhere around $2,000. And if you type in indoor exercise bike to Amazon, you can easily find one for like 200 pounds, which is 10% of the price. And let's get, let's put this into some real terms here. If you use the less expensive bike, the 200 pound one, 50 times and never used it again, right? You used it, I don't know, three times a week for however many times that would take you to get to 50, it would turn out to be about four pounds a ride. And not the end of the world for most of us, right? If you used a Peloton 50 times and then never used it again, it would roughly work out to be 35 pounds a ride, which is pretty damn steep if you consider that, you know, if you could go to the likes of SoulCycle um, and Cycle and all those indoor uh, cycling studios in London and get a real life instructor using the facilities and the showers and everything, it'd probably be roughly around the same price. So the value of the bike adds more incentive to use it as well. And now that I have looked into the price point, 
and I can see what you can get. I've seen that they've got actually quite a lot of options. I, I did some digging, trust me, guys. And they, you know, there's a package that comes with shoes. Yeah, like clip yourself in like a proper pro. You get water bottles, a heart rate monitor, headphones, a bike mat. So it protects your flooring, I assume. And that's like all of the bundle that comes with it if you choose that option. And I don't know about you, but for that convenience, I would probably opt for that package. If you're already spending $2,000 or so on the standalone bike, you're definitely gonna get all those accessories for like $100 more or something. And the funny aspect to this as well is even if you hid that Peloton away in another room and you didn't see it for a while, you'd probably see the shoes when you open your wardrobe. You'd probably see the water bottle in the cupboard. You'd see the heart rate monitor and headphones hanging around somewhere. You might even open your phone and see the app. And so you've always got reminders to use the thing as well. So to come full circle here, I think it can be a good investment, especially if the idea of indoor cycling appeals to you. I think it's a, you're a match made in heaven on that front. However, if you do prefer the idea of like rowing, weight training, and or even purchasing like a, a, some yoga mats, just do more yoga at home or something like that, like a rowing machine, weights, or like I said, a yoga mat and some blocks, it's probably going to be a better option for you if like indoor cycling doesn't appeal to you quite as much as those other things do. At the end of the day, I think it really just comes to, down to what you enjoy most and what takes the most resistance and barriers away from exercising. And Peloton do a pretty good job of that. And that's my final answer on that front. So let's transition into the final question, which is a quite a deep mindset question today. And I am going to start with a caveat. And this might trigger some people. And if it does trigger you at any point, it's probably worth reflecting. That's all I'm going to say because it might upset a few people, a couple of things that I'm going to say, but there's usually a reason if something triggers us, okay? So I'm going to start by saying a statement that, like I said, a lot of people may not like to hear, but I'm going to say it away. I'm going to say it anyway. A lot of us, myself included at times, we're too soft. We live in quite a soft society. And I'm actually slightly concerned for like the future of children and even like my own future children, if I'm blessed enough to have them one day, about them turning out too soft. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of challenges we have to face in life. And I also appreciate that I'm currently in a very fortunate and blessed position. I have a roof over my head. And I assume that you do too. And if you're listening to this, you probably have a smartphone that costs a hundred pounds. You don't have to worry about food being on the table tonight. And I think we all forget of how much of a blessing that actually is at times. And now think about like the really hard things you have to do that aren't optional or aren't like a product of your choices. Like we don't have to walk miles to go like to a well to get water. We don't have to hunt for our food. We don't have to you know, find shelter at the end of the day. And all of us will have different circumstances, but most of us, our challenges are created by our choices and our minds as well. And I want to exclude those with genuine physical and mental conditions here. I'm just talking about us who have our day-to-day -day problems and our health in, in a relatively good place because we all have some, you know, something going on, but I do want to, I do want to exclude people with genuine conditions at the moment. So let's start with this. And this is the part that might trigger a few people. Like I have a really stressful job. Yes, but you chose that job. And I also have to mention here that how stressed we get in a given situation or circumstance is largely a choice too. And then there's another one's person who says, I have to train and eat healthily and it's challenging. That's also a choice. And being healthy can, you know, being unhealthy, I should say, can cause a lot more challenges in time. I can assure you of that. 
And also, another tough pill to swallow, if you're overweight as well, the hard truth here is that was a choice to get that way too. And another one, I have my kids to look after. And I appreciate that this is 100% a challenge. However, aside from some really very unfortunate circumstances, the majority of us made this mutual choice with the partner that we're with or were with. And like I said, I'm probably tugging on a few strings here that, you know, you might find uncomfortable. When it boils down to it, a lot of our challenges in life come from the choices we make. And I place zero judgment on the choices people make. I have made many, many bad decisions and I've had to pay the consequences of these. And in some ways, I am still paying for some of the consequences of my poor decisions that I made years ago. And the reason I went down that rabbit hole before the question was even asked was because the question is this, how do I get better at doing hard things? And the thing that I wanted to go through first is that we really need to determine why these things are hard in the first place. And if it is just our mindset and our approach to these things that's genuinely making it harder. So I want to start here by looking at the weight loss scenario as a very easy example. As I just mentioned, the majority of us have a choice to be healthy. Like you might have not been educated on having good health. You might have not begun in the best circumstances, but this doesn't change the fact that your health is still your responsibility and no one else's. And yes, your circumstances may have been unfortunate, but you need to own them. So if you're finding yourself in a position where you're overweight, you're unhappy and find the process hard, first things first is that's okay. Exercise can be hard. Changing your eating habits can be hard. However, you're probably making it harder for yourself by blaming your circumstances, blaming others for not being a good influence, complaining about your lack of food choices, complaining that you don't enjoy specific forms of exercise that you're doing. And I can tell you that if you switched your mindset on these four things that I just mentioned, your whole perspective on a weight loss journey would change dramatically. Imagine taking responsibility for where you find yourself and being accepting of having to change your eating habits, having to exercise in order to achieve your goals and actually realize that those things are taking you to where you want to be and leading you to better health. Can you imagine like the difference that would make, like how much energy you would have and how much less mental bandwidth this would utilize to actually see it as something that's good as opposed to something that we resist all the time, right? When we create this resistance around these things that we want or need to do, they immediately become harder. So if you want to get better at doing hard things, the first place is to reframe your perception around the things that you're doing that are actually hard, right? And the next thing I actually want to go into is understanding the power of hormetic stress. And there is a phenomenon called hormesis. You may have heard of it before, you may have not, but it's a really, really interesting uh, concept. And the best example I can give you here is our resistance training that we do, right? We put our bodies and our muscles under a lot of stress, and then with recovery, they come back stronger, right? That's a great example of hormetic stress. And we're in a culture right now where we're under so much stress that we actually forget that some stress is actually valuable and our body can respond quite favorably for example in a weight training example like stress from a biological standpoint is you know where your body is taken out of its homeostasis and it's out of balance and what it will do is basically everything it possibly can to get back to equilibrium and as long as you're mindful of the dose of stress and you aren't majorly stressed by your environment, by your own mind, 
And hormetic stress can actually help you become more resilient and actually be able to handle like lower forms of stress a lot better and therefore welcome these hard things when they come. So if we look at stress from this perspective, we might actually invite the challenging things to us. Like some good examples to utilize from this perspective would be like, you know, hot and cold therapy. You're seeing a lot of people jump into the rivers and the sea in the early stages of the day now, right? Intermittent fasting is another good hormetic stress. Training, as I mentioned, or even like keeping a very positive outlook when facing adversity can be a really valuable one as well. The thing we do need to be careful of and this is probably where quite a few of us find ourselves, is that when this stress gets chronic and we expose ourselves to almost too much, we don't really want to go and seek out hard things. It's probably not a good idea either because of if we are chronically stressed, which means it's ongoing, there's never a way out, we're not actually going to benefit from the hormetic nature because the whole point of hormesis is that you actually return to your baseline, you return to equilibrium. So if you're just pounding yourself and pounding yourself, you're not actually going to get the benefits of that hormetic stress. And to solidify this in your mind a little bit more with a nice example is like, remember the time when you went through that super intense period at work, that project that you had that looming deadline for, and then once it was all over and you went back to your like regular day to day, you're like, oh, this, this actually seems quite easy now, you know, and whereas that was your, your big focus, your big stress before. Whereas when you experience something on a higher level and then come back to that baseline, you're stronger, you have more experience, you're more resilient. So this is a good example of how it can play out. And this allows me to shift gears onto the last point that I want to make today which is that it really just does come down to your mindset. If you embrace challenges as you know that they'll make you stronger and better in time, you'll begin to enjoy them. You'll begin to be like, ah, yes, challenge, come my way. I know I'm going to grow stronger from this. However, if you resist and complain, you'll never become better at doing hard things and they'll usually just, you know, feel painful and you won't actually seek them out, which is not a great thing because when we seek out those hard things, we overcome them, we grow, right? We And we want to grow. And the one big caveat that I want to close on here and something I personally experienced is that if you're already chronically stressed from your work, from your lack of a healthy lifestyle, your poor mental health, bringing more stress or doing more hard things isn't always going to be beneficial, right? The key is in the dose of the stress, and we should always be making sure that we're operating from a good place, both physically and mentally first, before exposing ourselves to any more. So make that priority number one, then you can start exposing yourself to all these hard things that you're subsequently going to grow from. So that was an episode. Like I said, those questions had absolutely no need for an introduction. I really enjoyed answering those today. So I hope that you guys were able to take some value. I hope that I didn't trigger too many people in the last one. And I'm never speaking, and I don't feel like I need to say this because I think you guys understand, but I'm never speaking from like a high horse here. I'm very much with you on this journey of my own personal development in all shapes and forms, both in my mental health, my physical health, just my personal growth. So I am learning just as you guys are learning. And I just want to share that with you to know that I'm always coming from the same place and always just want to share this information. So we learn and when we know better, we do better. So if you enjoyed this episode, please, please screenshot it. On IG stories is my favorite place to find them because I'm always hanging out on Instagram. I would love to repost you, love to see what elements of this episode you enjoyed. So please do that. And that is everything for today. Have a amazing week ahead, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and we'll speak soon. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. 
I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.